Welcome back to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. Today, I'm taking you inside a recent event where I sat down with two CEOs at the forefront of healthcare innovation, Kate Ryder and April Coe. Kate is the founder and CEO of Maven Clinic, the largest telemedicine health provider for family and women's health. And April is founder and CEO of Spring Health, a digital wellness platform aimed at making mental health easy to navigate for businesses and employees. Our conversation covered a range of topics, including their experiences as they built their companies, how COVID-19 impacted telemedicine, and their keys to success. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Great. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon and welcome to today's event. We're so happy that you're here with us today. And I am so excited to be talking to our guests who are both unbelievable founders and you'll really love to hear their stories. So first, I want to introduce Kate Ryder. She's the founder and CEO of Maven Clinic, the largest telemedicine health provider for family health and women's health, and April Coe the founder and CEO at Spring Health, a digital wellness platform making mental well-being easy to navigate for businesses and employees. So both of these founders are driving unbelievable innovation in their space. And I want to talk to each of them and we'll go through all their backgrounds and missions in a minute. But before I do, you know, everyone here has their bios, but I wanted to point out some things that both of our guests have in common. First, each of their respective companies are filling a gap in the healthcare market. I think that's pretty clear to see. Second, both companies are leveraging technology to really make an impact within the healthcare space. And third, both of these women have raised record financing rounds in 2020 for female-founded companies. So that is absolutely something to cheer about and congratulations to both of you. So first, let's start off. I would love for each of you to tell us about the problem that you were trying to solve in the market and how you organized your companies around that problem in a unique way. So Kate, let's start with you. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me and, and really thrilled to be here with everybody. So back when I started the company in 2014, really women's health was still considered very much a, a niche industry. There was a lot of the traditional healthcare system was, was really not focused on innovating in the space. They weren't really seeing the problems, even though, you know, when you look at a lot of the maternal statistics, you know, the U.S. has one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the developed world. You know, we have 20% higher C-section rates than WHO recommends. When you really look at instances of postpartum depression or fertility instances, we were just not really leaning in and supporting this time in life. And so my team and I, we thought that it was the first boom of digital health. And there was a lot around the telemedicine space that was really exciting, but nothing was really geared toward women and families. I was working in venture capital at the time in London. And what was so obvious with a lot of these companies is that women were the predominant consumer of a lot of the early digital health companies, whether it was was telemedicine, primary care, tracking, mental health. And so I thought, well, what if we actually just built a virtual care platform that really filled in a lot of these gaps in care for in maternal health, you know, with fertility and, and postpartum depression and, and just general access to OBs and, and midwives and, and lactation consultants. And we were able to do that with telemedicine and then build a whole kind of suite of products and clinical programs that was not just delivering the access, but also then was able to drive some outcomes along some of these key indicators. And so that's where we started. And seven years later, it's been amazing to actually see that the entire healthcare industry now does take women's and family health seriously. And so we're happy to talk more about that later. 
And your model is both a B2B and a B2C model. B2B to C primarily. So we work with companies and health plans and we, you know, we work with some banks. And so we, you know, anybody who's going through IVF or egg freezing, surrogacy, adoption, pregnancy, returning to work after having kids. And then our, our latest product is our pediatrics product. We really help em- employees navigate that journey, giving them better access to care, being that kind of supplemental wraparound support service through all of these major life experiences. And then, you know, we work with health plans as well. And we're, we're actually getting into Medicaid soon on just really delivering uh, better access, not just for employees of companies, but even in rural America, where there might not be an OB in the town at all to really help women navigate this. 50% of US towns actually don't have an OB. So there's a huge maternity desert in a lot of the US. And so we're also now getting into some of that as well. So April, tell us about Spring Health. I started Spring Health five years ago after struggling for over a decade with my own mental health. And I went through a really lonely and a really long process of trial and error to figure out something that would work for me. You know, I would try program after program after program or provider after provider or, you know, medication after medication. And it was just a nightmare of a journey. And thankfully I'm healthy today. And and I found kind of randomly what worked for me, but I know so many people are struggling in that way today. And so many people don't actually get to a place where, where they can call themselves mentally healthy. And so, so, you know, I've made it my life's mission to make mental health care a lot more accessible and a lot easier for others. The two things that, you know, I, I reflected on at the end of my journey was one, how alone I felt throughout and two, just how much random guessing there was, you know, everything in our lives is so data driven and personalized, but mental health care just felt like total guessing game, you know? And it felt like it was stuck in the dark ages. And so I partnered with the world's leading expert on computational psychiatry. His name is Dr. Adam Chekrud. And we came together around some groundbreaking research that he did showing that we could use machine learning to personalize care or personalize mental health care even better than, you know, an average psychiatrist can. Or in other words, he was able to show that we could use machine learning to outperform the average psychiatrist and matching people to the right care plan for them. And so I reached out to him cold and, you know, convinced him to commercialize that IP with me. And that happened five years ago. And you know, after experimenting with a few business models, we kind of accidentally found ourselves selling into enterprises and employers uh, about three years ago. And since then have just completely blown up as a company. We're so fortunate to work with some of the the largest employers in the country today, all across the map, uh, across Mm -hmm. tech finance, you know, and wholesale and, and all the blue collar workforces. So yeah, I feel very lucky to have kind of gone from my rock bottom or, you know, my, my mental health journey to now being in a, a really privileged position to help others have much more successful mental health journeys. Thank you for doing that. I mean, that's amazing. You took your own experience to really put that into the company and help others. What is that experience like for people, you know, using data to drive a better outcome? And how do I, as a user, get a better treatment plan right away by this experience? Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked that. So for me, when I started off my journey, it took like months to even like recognize that I was struggling with something. And then I like would self Google and find like random programs that were completely unvetted and, you know, invest thousands and thousands of dollars against them. And so that's like the before. And also it takes like at least three weeks, if not more for people generally to see a therapist, to get in the door with a therapist. And then after that, they might not even like 
licensed therapist and then try like four other therapists and it might be like a year long journey before finding someone. So that's the before. What we do is someone signs up for our platform. We comprehensively assess its dynamics, so it changes according to your responses and it really tries to pinpoint, you know, who you are and what you're dealing with. Then we give you a personalized care plan and based on who you are, it, 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 it obviously differs. And so for some people, it might be a therapist. It might be a specific type of therapist who's going to lead you down a particular type of therapy. It might be a specific modality. For some people, it might be medication, right? In which case we are able to actually predict what specific medication and what dosage would work for them. And for some people, it's meditation and mindfulness exercises or more kind of like softer resources. And so we, we surface the relevant resource for that person. And then we give them seamless access to that resource. And so for therapists, we we guarantee next day appointments and we also vet our therapists incredibly rigorously so that we're only surfacing the best of the best providers for our members. You've really taken a lot of the work out, which is amazing, especially when people really need this help right now. Um, so Kate, your company offers a really comprehensive set of services and really focuses on maternity as that life stage to help women. I'm wondering, how did you come to that particular life stage as the one you wanted to focus on? And how did you think about all the various aspects of what you wanted to cover? Great question. I, where we kind of see maternity in the whole kind of healthcare life cycle is, you know, a lot of people aren't really healthcare consumers by the time they get pregnant. So they've never really interacted with the healthcare system. And a lot of people don't even have PCPs at that point. And so oftentimes, you know, this beginning of life and the start of the family is not only one of the most transformative times in somebody's life, but it's also kind of the entrance to the whole healthcare industry as a healthcare consumer, because right afterwards, you become the chief medical officer of your home. You know, women are often that person and sometimes it's it's the partner and or a man as well but and so and this was so broken i have three kids myself and i have a four week old right now and you know i started my family building journey with a miscarriage so really had experienced kind of the the gamut of family building experiences and just had a C-section my first. So still continuing to experience the gamut. I joke with our product team that we, uh, I, I test the product every few years just to make sure that we have the best product <laughs> on the market. I think the key to how do you make a digital health service, you know, really unlock a lot of the value compared to the in-person care and it's through data and personalized experiences. And so when somebody starts their family building journey, you know, they come to it with a specific medical history, with a specific Point of view, you know, in the case of, of pregnancy, a lot of different anxieties, you know, what was your path to even get pregnant? Was it IVF? Was it easy for you? And so, you know, we similarly, you know, not only leverage kind of risk stratification to understand where are you on the risk spectrum and then how do we best help you? But I think what's unique about Maven's model is this kind of multidisciplinary care team that we provide you to be able to fill in the gaps in the traditional pathway. And, and so, you know, when you come into the Maven program, not only only are you getting kind of a, a care advocate to help you find an OB or find a fertility clinic or find a pediatrician or whatever you need. But then let's say you speak Spanish and you really want, uh, you know, providers that speak Spanish, we can, we can arrange that for you. If you're black and you really want, you know, providers who are black and, and can help you navigate that journey, we can, we can do that for you. Cause you don't even always have those choices in person, depending on who's right. in network or where you live. And so 
One, being able to kind of match that care from a cultural standpoint. And then two, oftentimes reimbursement is getting a little bit better, but a lot of times like you, you just don't have access to a lactation consultant or a women's health physical therapist or a maternal mental health provider. And so we're able to kind of put together a care team for you so that, you know, you, you have these personalized care plans and you have a lot of content and peer groups that are really relevant to you, but then you also have these providers who can really help you. And I can, you know, just on a personal note, I'm using Maven a, a ton right now for C-section recovery because it's abdominal surgery. I had no clue how hard it was to recover from, but in last week alone, I used a lactation consultant to understand how to hold the baby during, you know, after a C-section. And I used an OB just to basically understand surgery recovery norms. And I used a, a physical therapist to understand like what exercises I can start doing right now and what not to. It's not like I'm hearing the same thing from the OB that I am from the PT because they have such a different vantage point. And where I think our, our model and our care model really fails women and families is like during this time of having a child, it's the mother, it's the infant, it's the whole family. And it requires both that holistic care as well as that help navigating the medical and, and the in-person. And so that's kind of really, I think, where Maven shines. And what we hear overwhelmingly from our members is we fill in these core gaps as well as providing these personalized experiences that can help people navigate towards a better outcome on the labor and delivery side, you know, based on how they're interacting with the product. What I love about it too, is that you're providing things pretty much in real time, where in the past you would have to call your friends, call the doctor, wait to get called back, maybe get a referral. I remember doing that for a lactation consultant too. You know, I was lucky to get someone in my neighborhood, but it took a few days for her to come. And you know, this seems like such a better experience, a convenience, especially to new moms. Yeah, we're well, really if you're in bed all the time. But yeah, our OBs, you know, you can typically book one within 10 minutes. Some of our more kind of specialized providers, like you know, genetic counselors or pediatric occupational therapists, it's still kind of you can get them within 24 hours. So it's truly a level of on-demand support. I think that millennials demand um, in order to kind of trust and use the service. So I'd love to talk about telemedicine. You know, we are really in that era now. You, you both pioneered things, but now with that we're in COVID, it's probably the time and maybe accelerated telemedicine. So April, would love to understand, you know, how did COVID impact your business and how did people's embracing of telemedicine help you in the past year? And obviously what were the challenges to the COVID? Because I'm sure it wasn't all sort of good things. In short, COVID accelerated the trends that we were seeing before the pandemic. And it's been incredible for business, both from an impact standpoint and from a revenue standpoint. I like to tell people we've always believed that the future of mental health care is virtual. I point to a, a distinct you know, moment that I like to share with my team often, or in my own mental health journey, I, I once had a psychiatrist appointment like a few blocks away, and I couldn't even just get out of bed to walk a few blocks to go to that, that psychiatrist. And, you know, I think back to that moment and think in that moment, I had all the right access. I had a great psychiatrist that I could see, and I had the appointment, but even just like getting out of bed posed a barrier to my mental health. And our mission statement is to eliminate every barrier to mental health. And in that moment, I remember thinking to myself, why can't I just video call my psychiatrist? I love that Spring Health is a virtual first mental health care solution because we're eliminating so much friction. We're eliminating all the different barriers that could exist between someone going from point A to point B. And I think the virtual component is a huge part of that. I see we're a virtual first company and that we've always, we've always known that the future of mental health care is 
is virtual. So we've created the infrastructure around that from day one, but we also have in-person services. You know, some people want to see their provider in person and they want to have that experience and have that quiet, you know, room with their therapist. Um, and so we give people the option, but when COVID hit, obviously we, we turned off all of our in-person services and we went fully digital. And I think that, you know, the stress induced from the, the pandemic, as well as like just the ease of access of, of teletherapy or telehealth just blew up the utilization of our services. Mm -hmm. And so we saw a six X spike in utilization, like in April or May, because people were kind of like, scrambling to, to, to find help. And so COVID was really good for us. And some investors say, oh, is this just a, like a, a fad? Is this just a phase? Like, is it the COVID spike? And, you know, mm -hmm. and then is it, is mental health going to die after? And my answer to them is absolutely not. Mental health was already exploding as a category before the pandemic, you know, the younger generations, I'm a millennial, we think about mental health very differently from previous generations. You know, we, we, we speak about our mental health issues much more openly. There's much less stigma in the younger generations. We tweet about these issues. And mental health seems like one of those unfortunate lasting legacies from COVID. You know, we might not even know right now it's going to come in a few years, especially with children and younger people really struggling with the after effects of what's been happening in the past year. So Kate, how do you look at telemedicine when it comes to some of your specialties? You know, some of them you would have thought you might have to see somebody, whether it's to look at your body or to, I don't know, just sit down and, and sort of take an exam, but are you finding you can do a lot more things as well? Remotely? Yeah, that was kind of a misconception early on. You know, I think when when we introduced telemedicine to the OB and, and maternal health space is like, oh, well, don't you just need to go to the doctor and have an ultrasound, you know, and how do you do that? Or same with fertility, right? It was like, well, don't you just have to like go to the to the doctor and, and do the egg retrievals and, and whatnot? First of all, we kind of look at women's health as the intersection of reproductive health and mental health and, and what that kind of leads to. Mental health, super underserved from a maternal mental health standpoint. So a lot of times, like you can't just like go to a therapist and get treated for postpartum depression if they've never seen it before. And maternal mental health in general wasn't even taught in grad schools as a discipline until very recently. So bringing that 24-7 access, we, we staff overnight as well for people going through this because a lot of times, you know, you spend eight minutes with your OB every month and then there's Dr. Google who like freaks you out in between visits, gives you terrible information out the time and you just can't get in touch with your OB all the time. And so no. to be able to provide that kind of like, am I normal? How do I prep for an appointment? What, what does this mean for a pregnancy with that virtual access to OB support is really helpful. You know, about 75% of the time you actually don't need to go into the doctor. You're kind of getting a clarification. You're, you have a question. You could be using video and, you know, my providers have been looking at my C-section scar over the past few weeks and, and actually, you know, giving me really good advice based on how it looks. Same with when I use pediatrics, I'm, you know, showing my daughter's rashes all the time. And so, you know, you're, 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 you actually can accomplish a lot over video. And so I think, you know, but 25% of the time you do need to go in, or there are those patients, particularly older patients where they do need to go into the doctor. They're not going to get enough accomplished over video. So again, I think it's in a really, really important part of the healthcare industry for providing access. It's not a, a catch-all. It's not a silver bullet for a lot, but it can accomplish a lot more, I think, than the industry has been giving it credit for. And so it's been really cool to see not only the provider adoption over the past year that we just didn't see in the early days, but then on the consumer side, you know, we struggled in 2015 and 2016 to even like 
just normalize doing virtual visits with providers. Like people, you know, some people are like, that's so weird. Why, why would you do that? And now we've just gone through a, a Q1 launch season or, you know, we, we're launching to big employers and we're saying, oh, and you have this benefit through Maven and, you know, you, you get this on-demand virtual support telemedicine and we're seeing like record number of enrollments. We don't have to explain what it is anymore um, yeah. or we would have to spend time. So it's it's really been great, I think. And, and fundamentally what it does for everybody, particularly in our category of women's and family health is it just provides more access to people who need it. Oh, in so many more ways. I think I was a believer in telemedicine over COVID when my son's pediatrician diagnosed his ear issue, you know, remotely. I couldn't believe that. I thought for sure we'd have to go in. I, I felt like a doctor because she said to me, you know, well, look on the ear. Does it look red on the inside or not? Okay. I think it's swimmer's ear and it, yep, swimmer's ear. So we sent in the prescription and it was done. Like that's when I realized, okay, we can do this. Yeah. Yeah. We run a telemedicine business. And even for my daughter, who's three, um, I got, we got Lyme's disease medication via telemedicine mm-hmm. during the height of COVID. And I was always like, I don't know if I want medication for a three-year-old over telemedicine. And now it was just, it was so easy. Even I'm like, you know, more of a convert at this point. Uh, one thing too, that's been interesting, you know, you have different providers in different places. Everyone's going online with their data now, with your patient portals, access to your records. You're able to bring in test results now and, and talk to your doctors now, you know, online and messaging, which I find a lot faster than the old phone way. Where do you both see innovation now taking place in healthcare? You know, is it not only in that experience and the providing of the care, but also in that data side and and exchanging your, your health records? So I think that like maybe five years ago, there was this obsession with faster access and easier access. And so I think that there was like this proliferation of digital healthcare companies that emerged that, that promised better access. But I always like to mm-hmm. say that you know, faster access is meaningless if the care doesn't actually work for you. And that's yeah. wh- where personalization and data can come in, right? And um, you know, I tell my team, traditional care is like paper maps, very opaque. You're left on your own to draw the path from A to B. You don't, you have no idea what the traffic will look like. It's you're, you know, pulling, I've never used a paper map, right? Cause I'm a millennial, so, but like, you know, that's the traditional care experience. And then the digital health 1.0 was like the map quest of healthcare, right? In that the experience was getting digital, telehealth was emerging. Things were going from brick and mortar to being virtual and digital, but like basically the same problems in, in healthcare around the trial and error, the lack of precision, mm-hmm. those things still remained. It was just kind of put online and made easier to access. What we're trying to build is the way or the Google Maps of mental health care and that we're trying to use real-time data to inform the journey along the way so that we can optimize the path from A to B so that it's the shortest at any given point. And, you know, that's where I, I think all of healthcare is headed. I, I hope all of healthcare is headed in that direction. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I guess in the past, if you wanted to ask your doctor a question, you probably went to the doctor and that doctor gave you the time. But now we're all sending the doctor messages all the time while they're still seeing patients. You can really see how that adds up. That is very difficult on their end. Yeah, I mean, if this is what everyone's talking about, physician burnout. And, you know, I, I just read a really a terrible stat. I think like 15% of, the, of healthcare workers have left their jobs in the last year because of burnout, because I mean, not just COVID, but it's also this, what EMRs are doing and all of this, the stuff they have to do. I I feel what you're saying, Kate, like so acutely, because actually when we started Spring Health, we had this like amazing vision for data-driven, you know, personalized mental health care. And and we had this amazing AI, as you mentioned, and we were like, it's going to change the world. 
And we, we started selling into provider systems and we just assumed that providers wanted to be better providers and they would want to adopt the software and all this stuff. And we were so wrong. It's not because the providers are bad. I do think that the system is rigged against them and it's, it's really there, there's data overload and there's like EHR overload and regulation overload. And it's not perfect, right? Like I, I think that our providers, like we could do so much more to improve the provider experience, but because we felt the pain that you're talking about, Kate, around like providers just not being able to utilize, you know, the data or the AI that's out there because of their just complex workflows. We, we decided to actually own the provider network and own the provider system ourselves. And it's it's helped us move forward in, in our vision to deliver actually data-driven care. It's a fascinating change in your business model, really, that you started with this presumption that that's how you would sell, sell into them. And you really had to pivot and own now sort of the end-to-end process and then make people yeah. your employees. You know, as people are listening to this and if there's other entrepreneurs out there, how would you guide people to think about, you know, a fundamental premise you had about the business and really looking at that very critically and switching and making a huge pivot as needed? Yeah. I mean, I remember it was, we were still very small at that point. We were like maybe 15 people when we made the pivot, but I remember I, I took the founders on a retreat and they didn't know it was coming. They just thought that we were just going on a retreat. <laughs> And I wrote this like six page memo, basically, you know, describing everything that I was seeing and how hard it was selling to provider systems and how I felt like the momentum wasn't there. I felt like the product market fit wasn't there. And I started recounting, you know, anecdotally the conversations that I was having with HR departments and how I felt like there was so much more momentum there and how I felt that if we really wanted to enable this vision for data-driven care, we needed to have more control over, you know, provider workflows and, and over our providers and work hand in hand with them. And so I laid out the case to make that pivot. And I'm actually, this is one of the things I'm most proud of actually as CEO of, of Spring Health over the past five years. I, I recommended a hard pivot, like a hard hard stop selling into health systems. Kate, did you have any of those pivots too? Any of those big moments where you had to make a, a pretty tough decision and switch gears? We shut down a product. So we launched a failed product. We were chipping away at the enterprise market, but it was just moving really slow. And we needed a round of funding because startups every 12 to 18 months, you need a round of funding. And so there was just something that changed in the fundraising markets where I was like, oh, you need a million dollar revenue threshold to go raise a series A. And I was like, oh my God, like we, the enterprise market's not moving fast enough to be able to, and, and the sales cycle is quite long too, to be able to kind of get that million dollars of revenue. So we had our B2C marketplace and that wasn't, you know, we, we, we that was not definitely going to get us the, the million dollars. So we noticed this trend where there was all these college students getting birth control prescriptions off of Maven in 2016. And so we're like, well, what if we create a subscription model where we get that recurring subscription revenue and it's aimed at college students and maybe we have their parents buy the product so they don't because college students are poor so we launched maven campus to basically fund our enterprise business we got our big first fortune 50 like very shortly after we launched the product that the problem was we did all these user tests where we would interview the parents, the moms and the dads of these college students and were like, would you buy this product? And this is the price point and this is the value proposition. And they were like, yes. And we realized later on they were just being polite. And actually, 
because we were, their daughters were like campus ambassadors of Maven. So they were trying to be helpful. And, and the overwhelming issue was that if their daughters were getting birth control from Maven, they didn't want to think about their daughters having sex in college. So we launched it. We quickly shut it down eight months later. And thankfully at that point, that big four million a year enterprise contract had now taken hold and we survived. Mm -hmm few lessons there, you know, <laughs> pivot when you need to. But obviously, if anyone is on this call trying to do research for companies, please give them the truth so they yeah, know exactly. what yeah. to do. Well, let's talk about funding for your businesses, you know, and financing. You both have been very successful, but we've seen, you know, so much research out there that women in particular have a difficult time raising money. It's very low in terms of the money they've raised in the VC world. What do you think you had to do to be successful? Who did you go to investor-wise and how did you make the pitches and how did you maybe change along the way to, to stay successful at it? The 2014 to 2018 era of Maven's fundraising was terrible. This was not a hot market. There was telemedicine skepticism. You know, we didn't have, uh, it was still like we were building a category. So it was still unproven that there was even a big TAM here. Still, there was just not a lot of understanding of like the problems you're solving because the investors were overwhelmingly male. It just, it wasn't resonating. And so, yeah, so, so honestly, it was just a game of numbers. And at a certain point, you know, I was, I got rejected all the time. And at a certain point I was kind of like, all right, an investor has to be either a woman because they understand the problem. They may not understand healthcare, but they understand the problem or they have to be a healthcare investor because actually the healthcare investors did understand the size of this industry. They just had never seen a company be successful here before. It was just a brutal and bloody game of numbers. And we finally got it done. And then our series B was in 2018 and Sequoia and Oak. So Sequoia is one of the best, the best consumer fund and Oak's the best healthcare fund. They co-led it. Two women actually joined the board. Oh, we had an all woman board for a little while and then things changed. So we've raised about 90, a little over 90 million. We're raising a series D as soon as I recover from having a child. And um, wow. yeah, really, really excited that now women's health is a category in venture capital. Mm -hmm. And I get inbound all the time. Time from men, not just women. And April, what about you? What's what's the financing journey been like? It was tough. I would say there's a lot of research showing that like VCs or I think generally anyone judge women on their experience and their history and men on their potential. And I think that potentially speaks to the huge gap between female founder capital and male founder capital, I guess. And I think that's true of me and, and my story. And, you know, I started the company when I was, uh, or I met Adam when I was 23 and started the company, I think, officially when I was 24. So I was still very young. And I do think that my age and how green I was presented a barrier and that was not lost on me. And yeah, I think that it was hard in the beginning, but, you know, we had a few angels who really believed in us and opened up their networks. And, you know, we, we got really good rounds done. And, you know, looking back, I'm kind of like, wow, what do they see in us? Cause we had no clue what we were doing, <laughs> but I think like we the one vision. Thing yeah, we had a vision. Yeah, I would say until we got to product market fit and we, you know, our numbers started speaking for themselves, it was definitely difficult. And then we just had like a fantastic round um, in our series B, we raised 76 million from Tiger Global just four months ago. And if I had any tactical advice for others, I would just say stay resilient through all the no's. Like Kate, I heard so many no's and I think that some people just give up midway and some people don't. And the people who don't give up are successful. And so, you know, stay with it. And maybe another piece of advice that I would give is don't underestimate, unfortunately, and this kind of sucks to say, but it's true. 
and Kate knows it because she got Sequoia's money, but like don't underestimate the value of like a brand name investor from the beginning. Just begets trust and credibility. Yeah, exactly. Credibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of um, FOMO-based investing mm. in the industry. <laughs> like yes. every, yeah. every, at the stock market too, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, if once it works for you, make, make use of that, leverage that, right? Go out to others. Were you both fundraising then the past year differently, you know, virtually? And if so, do you think that trend will continue for you? Or will you pick up again and start seeing investors in person? Maybe Zoom for some, in person for some. Not totally sure how it's going to work, but certainly I do occasional catch-ups with investors and we even got some offers in January to do the round. And yeah, that was all all Zoom-based. And I, I feel like when I've spoken to our board about it, when they're making new investments, they don't seem to mind. In person's more fun, but there's still mm. a velocity of deals being done that we've never seen right. in digital health before. So everyone's just kind of used to it now. Yeah, I raised my round completely virtually. And in my last process, there were some people who insisted on the New York, you know, outdoor, you know, restaurant masks Mm. on meeting, because they said that, you know, there's nothing like an in-person meeting to really get a feel for someone. And I think that's absolutely true. If I do a a round where, you know, I'm adding a board member, I'm absolutely going to want to see them in person. Well, I think so many of us with new employees that we've never met in person in the last year, at least looking forward to that, right? Getting to know and train our new employees and younger employees when we can go back to the office. So I would love to open it up to questions now from our audience. So Jonathan, can you see if anyone has any questions? All right, we do have one coming in here. So what are some best practices or resources that you use to build a diverse board and team? I can talk a little bit about this. So I think from a board perspective, you don't have as much say, obviously. However, you can negotiate independent board seats. So it's something that we've done. We have two that we're going to, you know, we're holding on to, to again, create that diversity. On the team, it's really, really investing in principle-based hiring practices and pipeline quotas. So we don't have quotas for the actual, you know, employees are too small for that, but we certainly have quotas for our hiring process. And so I think that's, and and when we work with recruiters, we also share those quotas with them and really push them as well to show us, you know, more female candidates, more black candidates, more Latinx candidates, or those are the, you know, on on the engineering side, more female engineering candidates. So, um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, so I think it's just being super principles based on, on hiring pipeline. Um, I'm really proud of the diversity that we've managed to build into our internal team and, and also our board is, you know, two women, two men. So, you know, feeling good about that. But I think that it comes down to whether you as co-founders care about it. Um, I certainly do because I'm obviously a female person of color and I've, you know, encountered racism and, and sexism firsthand and have great empathy for that. But also my co-founder, who's like a white dude, he cares so deeply about eliminating the patriarchy and advancing feminism. And, you know, he's just been so supportive through his actions and through, you know, holding the company accountable um, to hiring diverse people. And because of, of that support, I think that we've managed to hire a really diverse team. So 60% of our team are women. You know, we have 16% of our team are, are Black, you know, 20% are, are people of color. And so I, and I think part of that, by the way, is prioritizing diversity over speed to filling roles. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. we have taken some time to find the right person to make sure that our exec team or our leadership team um, is as diverse as possible. I love that you said that, really taking the time. And I know we're all in a rush to get jobs filled, especially if you're a startup and a younger company and you really need to get things done. But taking the time to really have that payoff in the end to a diverse team, we think is very much worth it. 
So we have a question here. What's been your most surprising lesson as CEO and a piece of advice for other first-time female CEOs in digital health? I think it's been, it's changed with every stage of business, which is, so I'm on a constant learning curve. Being the CEO of a 30-person company is very different than 75, which is very different than 200. So I think as we've gotten bigger, my job has shifted from actually doing to empowering and cheerleading. And so, you know, I think it's just how quick Quickly, your job changes overnight from based on the needs of the business and the, and the size of the companies. It's that I am on, you know, there no one day is, is the same. And I know it from other founder friends, it will continue to change a lot, you know, over the next few years. Mm. April, what would you say to that? I think my, my most surprising thing is watch out because I do think that the world is brutal to female CEOs and executives and founders. And I think that there's like this weird media takedown culture of female CEOs. And, you know, there's a lot of research showing that, you know, you have the same exact resume and put Heidi on it or Harold on it or whatever. And Heidi will be called aggressive, unlikable, you know, overly ambitious. And Harold will be called a go-getter and likable and, you know, all that. And there's so much research showing that bias. And and it's real and I've experienced it. And I would say that's probably the most surprising thing that I've, I've learned over the, the course of this journey. We have over indexed at Maven. We have an incredible comms team, an incredible people team, and they really helped me also kind of think about this. And I think to April's point, I don't think our my male founder friends have to invest this much time yeah. or this heavily in it. It's definitely, I think, important as a female CEO to really understand those kinds of biases in our culture and then build an organization that is supportive because it's all about the business at the end of the day. It's it's less about April and myself, but it's it's more about some of this culture around female CEOs. Is that going to hurt Spring or is that going to hurt Maven? Yeah. So yeah. really building those right. structures to be able to really succeed. Because there's, of course, a ton of benefits too of being a female CEO. Female CEO is out perform, right? On, on their, their male counterparts. There's tons of research on that. And yeah. so, you know, I think there's a, a ton of, of benefit and, and knowing that there are some pitfalls to really build an organization, an amazing team to help protect against that. And look at what you're both building. You're providing solutions to things that weren't there before based on who you are and your experiences. And that is going to benefit women. That's so important, obviously. Well, we are at time. And so Kate Ryder, April Coe, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for driving innovation in these markets and for being really inspirational, I think, to all of us here, whether we're founders or not. I think meeting you and, and talking with you has been a real jolt of energy, especially now these days. So thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It was such a pleasure hosting Kate in April, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I want to thank both of them for diving into very informative topics, like how they leveraged their personal experience into startup success, how they navigated change, and how they knew when it was time to pivot. I think these lessons are helpful both in business and in everyday life. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.